You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Saturday, April 11th, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, New York. So uh, every year when we do our live show in New York, uh, for as long as we've been doing that, uh, we use the opportunity to remember our lost friend Perry DeAngelis. This is essentially the Perry DeAngelis Memorial episode that we do every year. Uh, Perry was one of the original rogues. He, he was there at the beginning of the New England Skeptical Society, at, at the beginning of our skeptical activism, uh, at the beginning of the SGU. His spirit and his uh, his vibe was part of what crafted the the SGU and made it into what it what it is, and he will always be a part of the show in spirit, um, and so that's why we like to every year just remind our listeners of what a big part of uh, of the show Perry was and a big part of our lives. I mean, he just was a great guy that we'll never forget. He came up with the name Skeptics Guy to the he, he suggested yes, he it first. We have that email from two thousand five. <laughs> Uh, and we have lost other friends along the way as well. Uh, Mike Lassell, uh, in the lower left there. Uh, Mike uh, started out as, as self-described our biggest fan, but really became an, an integral part of the SGU. He, he was working largely behind the scenes. He would join us for, you know, our end of the year show every year, but he did a tremendous amount of work for the SGU that you just didn't see because it was all just behind the scenes. And, uh, we also lost another friend of the SGU just recently. Michael Orticelli, uh, he is an artist who, who lent, uh, and a good friend and a good skeptic, good supporter of the SGU. He lent a lot of skills to the skeptical movement as well. He made our SGU fish that some of you are purchasing at our uh, swag table outside. So, Bob, you're going to start us off with uh, our new segment, the Forgotten Superheroes of Science. Yes, uh, this one I'm calling the Women of Fission. These two women here, there is Lisa Meitner and Ida Natick. And they were respect, uh, respectfully uh, physicists and chemists who made uh, surprising and insightful and also critical insights into, into the discovery of fission. Ever hear of them? I hadn't. Um, I'll start with Ida Nodek. She was a German chemist who discovered the element rhenium. And she also was the first person to ever get the idea of fission. And the story behind it is interesting. Enrico Fermi, very famous physicist, was doing an experiment where he bombarded uranium uh, with neutrons, and he said, hey, I think I may have created transuranic elements here, which would have been quite a discovery. But she created, she wrote a paper and said, wait a second, you really didn't do that. The controls of your experiment were kind of off, but what you may have done is fragmented the, the uranium and created these large, large pieces, which essentially is fission. And no one had ever suggested that before. And of course, her comment was was ignored. Nobody... It didn't fit in with the mindset of the day. It didn't go anywhere. And then Lisa Meitner, who, boy, she got it bad. Um, she was a physicist from Austria, and uh, she was a, uh, her specialty was nuclear physics and radioactivity. Now, she worked with her colleague Otto Hahn for 30 years, 30-year working relationship with this guy. Even after she was exiled from Nazi Germany, they kept up a, uh, a letter correspondence. And she worked with him and guided him through his experiments, 
Uh, she was a, a critical contributor to that. And not only that, she also gave him the theoretical and mathematical support he needed for his vision experiments to, to make it something that people would take seriously. And then on top of all that, she actually was the first to have the insight that the extra energy coming from that experiment was due to Einstein's E equals MC squared. I mean, she contributed all this. So it was theoretical and le like mathematical logistical yes. support. And you need she did the busy work as well as right. guide the theory of what right. was going on. You can't just have an experiment and, and think that's going to be enough. You need the theoretical and mathematical support, which she offered. So who do you think won the Nobel Prize in 1945 for chemistry? Otto Hahn. He did not give her. <laughs> he did not give her any credit at all. It was really pathetic. And Scientific American says that this was the number one Nobel snub of all time. It was really bad. Injustice. So, so forget about Otto Hahn. Remember <laughs> Lisa Meitner and Ida Natick. Uh, mention them to your friends. Uh, perhaps when you're discussing nuclear transmutation of common fissile. Uh, isotopes. I was just having that conversation the other day with a friend of mine. <laughs> of course, well, well, yeah, with Brian here, of course. Yeah, yeah that's true. talking about that. <laughs> so this story's been going around uh, the, the interwebs recently. Uh, a mother, a Canadian mother, uh, Tara and Gavin Hills, mother and father, from Kanata, Canada. Kanata, Canada. Say, ah. that, say that ten times fast. Cannot. Kanata, Canada. Cannot. They have uh, seven children aged ten months to ten years old. And she partially vaccinated her first few children, and then... What does that mean, partially vaccinated? Well, they got some of their vaccines in their schedule, but not the whole schedule. Oh. She stopped partway through the vaccine schedule and then didn't vaccinate any of her subsequent children. So four of her children were completely unvaccinated. Three were partially unvaccinated. She says, as I, you can see the quote, I got scared, I got spooked, I thought there's a lot of smoke, there must be fire. So we stopped vaccinating oh, okay. our children. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so she was afraid because she was reading a lot of uh, misinformation online, scaring her off of vaccines. This is this is the effect of the anti-vaccine movement. What was is that? A fa is there a fallacy in there where the this, this smoke has got to be? Fired? Yeah, yeah, there is. I actually talked about that on my workshop on Thursday. But it's Use not. It's example. something that we can understand, though. I mean, if you think about yeah. it, the vast majority of the people out there don't have an education on this stuff. They're not reading the stuff that we read. And what do you do? You know, think about all the stuff you, you are an expert in. Yeah, even if they are finding some of the scientific or reassuring articles online, it's easier to be scared. You know, the stuff that will resonate with a parent. I don't want to inject my child with something that's going to directly harm them. We, we have more of a fear of causing direct harm than allowing harm to occur through inaction. So just emotional. This is what's, what I like about this case is that she, in, she lays out the exact emotional case that we are talking about. What happens, what can happen through this misinformation. The logical fallacy, by the way, or at least one that's in there, is she's begging the question. Like, where there's smoke, there's fire. Well, that assumes that the only cause of smoke is this particular fire that you're talking about. It could be something else. Like, it could be a smoke machine, um, which is what I think a better analogy here. There's misinformation. It's a misinformation is the smoke. And no, there doesn't have to be what they're telling you to be afraid of. So anyway, the, the reason why this is, her particular experience is circulating is because all seven of her children recently came down with whooping cough, uh, a vaccine-preventable illness. And when that happened, she became more afraid of infectious disease than of the anti-vaccine misinformation. So she flipped. She wrote a blog post saying that she's no longer anti-vaccine, that she feels she was victimized by misinformation, 
She so like her children were coughing and whooping cough, as the name implies, has a very characteristic cough that's very violent. In fact, children can die just because they can't catch their breath. Their cough is so bad they just can't catch their breath. She said like it's this is a quote from her: the kind of cough that stops a parent's heart. Again, a perfect line. Yes, that's the kind. So she was more afraid of the disease than of the vaccines. And then she flipped and said, okay, now I'm going to get my kids vaccinated. A little too late. All seven have whooping cough. Mm -hmm. But she also fears that she might have given it. Her family gave it to her sister's newborn. Uh, If you have a newborn, you know, they shouldn't be around anybody who isn't fully vaccinated. Could you imagine her circumstance? She has seven kids. It probably went through her house very wildfire. Yeah. Yeah. She had seven sick children in her house. I'm sure that was a showstopper for her. She says, right now, my family is living the consequences of misinformation and fear, which I think is is astute. It's accurate. Steve, would the vaccine help even a tiny bit at that point? No. no, no. The whole point of the vaccine is that you get an immune response that then primes you for the next time. So then you get what's called an anamnestic response. You get your immune system remembers and instead of taking weeks to build up your immunity, it, you have an immediate, robust immune response. By the time you get that effect, the, the whooping cough will be over. So, yeah, it's too late to vaccinate with this particular illness once you're already sick. Do you know, are there, are there any lasting effects to this? Could, could it give you... To whooping cough? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I mean, most people survive with modern health care because we're good at treating acute illnesses like this. Uh, but it's risky. I mean, yeah, you can, you can have horrible consequences up to and including death. Just some, just to throw some statistics at you. So there's lots of graphs of the, uh, this is the death rate from mortality per million uh, from whooping cough. You can see in 1901, you know, 350 people per million just in the general population died of whooping cough. Uh, A lot of people, you know, thousands of people in the U.S. died every year from whooping cough. And then it steadily decreases from 1900 to around 1950. That's because of improved medical care. Not the vaccine? No, no, no. The death rate of everything decreased from 1900 Mm -hmm. to 1950, of any, you know, treatable, manageable illness. So if you look at all of the horrible infectious diseases that vaccines prevent, they all show a similar graph if you look at death. And so the anti-vaxxers will show this graph and say, see, the vaccine's not doing anything. The disease was already gone by the time the the vaccine kicks in in 1945. And you could see the drop at that point. And then the modern vaccine kicks in in 1955. And then it really plummets to practically zero. So the vaccines do have an effect. But when you go all the way out and include the, the, you know, incredibly high death rate from prior to really having scientific medicine, it, it obscures the effect of the vaccine. So that's just a trick that the anti-vaxxers use. And they use that with not just whooping cough, but with other illnesses as well, like measles is a perfect example. You see the same graph with measles. But anyway, the vaccine did ultimately, you know, decrease the mortality rate down significantly. You could see, you know, in like 1996, even the infant mortality rate is down to practically zero. But now it's coming back Mm -hmm. because of the anti-vaccine movement. This is just sort of an index case, as we would call it. This, This woman and her family... It just illustrates all of the aspects of why the anti-vaccine movement is dangerous. Now, is that washing hands, like, could it be as simple as it's a, cleanliness it's, and... It, well, it always helps. Good hygiene always Anti-inflammatories. Helps, but, no, anti-inflammatories aren't going aren't to prevent the spread of this, but it's a very infectious disease. No, so, meaning when they treat someone that has whooping cough, yeah. you think that, that that treatment was what 
change? No, no, no. What's keeping people alive is that we can treat their lung disease. We can intubate them if we need to. You can breathe right, them. Okay. You know, yeah, it's, it's more heavy duty. We can give them steroids if we need to. We can give them more heavy duty treatment. Yeah. Steve, that graph ended in 96. What would we see in the past 20 years? Would it was a little bump? A little it was bump? flat and then there's a little bump, yeah, in the last few That's years. That's the Jenny McCarthy bump. Yeah, the Jenny <laughs> McCarthy bump. Yeah, <laughs> bump. You could call that. All right, Jay. Yes. I understand spiders are very scary. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, anybody that's really afraid of spiders, please raise your hand. Or clap. How about that? Clap. Clap if you're afraid of spiders. All right, now clap if you're just afraid of any insect. Less. Okay. That More spiders. Not going to be less. <laughs> spiders are an insect? Whatever. <laughs> All right. All right, how about this? Clap if you're afraid of any creepy crawly. You're All right, lying. That, okay. right, now that's, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Right, so clap if you're too afraid to clap when we ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So there has been some studies um, that were done last August that just asking the simple question about, um, you know, are, are people afraid of spiders? and or, or is it more accurate to say, do people just notice creepy crawlies? And if we do, you know, what, what are the characteristics that we notice? Um, and there's lots of pretty, a lot of interesting research that they did. So check this out. So two psychologists, Joshua New from Barnard College and Tamsin German, from the University of California, published, published some findings in evolution and human behavior last August. And listen to this. They considered spiders as an evolutionary, persistent ancestral hazard that we have essentially evolved to notice. We're not speaking directly about fear. We're just saying that, that people have evolved to notice things like spiders. Does your gut tell you that that's accurate? Do you guys have, do you, do you tend to agree with that statement? Well, I mean, I think I understand the concept. I personally, is that what you're asking personally? Yeah. I, I don't really personally have any fear of critters. I mean, I've held snakes and insects and spiders and centipedes and whatever. But uh, I don't like having things near my eye. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't want to have something crawling right near your eye. Oh, that, yeah, that'd be disconcerting. Dr. Navella, I am a Ragnus, lord of all evil spiders. I'm going to swallow your soul. <laughs> that is awesome. What the hell? When you have a container of sulfur hexafluoride, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we recommend everyone get their own. And it just keeps going. <laughs> the, the reason you don't see as many sulfur hexafluoride demonstrations as helium demonstrations is that the, a little tank of sulfur hexafluoride costs $200. Yeah. Whereas the helium was like, what, 15 bucks? That's a ten dollar balloon. Actually, it's $10, yeah, <laughs> it's a ten dollars a balloon. Yeah, but anyway, cool. So yeah, what we showed is that the balloon dropped a lot faster than the air-filled balloon. So sulfur hexafluoride is six times heavier than air, mm. and so when you breathe it in, your vocal cords vibrate the air at much deeper, you know, frequency, and yeah. so it makes your voice sound awesome. It feels really weird too. It, it does. You can feel like this did the vibration get, difference. Did you get lightheaded? A little bit, yeah. yeah. But I like that. Okay. Um, <laughs> so to get back to the news item, so they, these the researchers were saying that we have an ancestral mecha mechanism that quickly notices specific types of movement, which I thought was really interesting. So, Bob, I just want to make sure you don't feel bad for being a wuss because it's basically cooked into your DNA. Jay, I fell in love with spiders after my first Spider-Man episode when I was eight. I mean, this, I have That's no true, problem with spiders at all. Bob's always been an arachnophile. That is, yeah, that's right. Ooh. They, we have evidence that, that humans or, or primates have commingled with spiders for, you know, around 40 million years, which is plenty of time for us to, to evolve some type of mechanism for us to deal with things that are dangerous, right? That's the whole point of survival. So today, um, 200 out of 40,000 species are considered threats. Of to spiders. Yeah. Uh, spiders, health, to healthy adults. And the numbers are drastically different than they were 
Uh, you know, there's a lot less deadly spiders today, according to, I guess, not to this research. But Unless you live research. in Australia. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you know what, so in this part of the country, there's only two spiders that are venomous. Black Widow and, and the Brown Recluse. Black, Black Widow, which I think everybody knows. And well, the we have Black Widows around here? We do, yeah. And the Brown Recluse is the other one, which has, it's brown, and it has like a violin shape on its, I think, abdomen. It could be back. I, forget I would pretty much freak out if I saw a Black Widow. They're they're venomous. Yeah, they're they're yeah. deadly. Yeah, I would get away quickly. So yearly, there's only about 200 spider-related deaths. Which out of you know, is globally? That, is that, that's worldwide? globally. That's globally. Yeah, it's that's not, not a lot. lot. It's not a lot. I would figure that just in Sydney, there'd be like a couple hundred <laughs> people dying a year. But. <laughs> get a bad rap for Sydney. Um, so the researchers were testing. Now check out the mechanism that they came up with. Or just the, the way that they ran their test. They they had a um, two perpendicular lines on a computer screen, and they asked their subjects to to study the lines. So they're essentially having them be very much attentive to what's happening on the screen. And then for, you know, a fraction of a second, they would show a lot of different stuff, right? So they'd show a hypodermic needle. They'd show a common housefly. Jamie Ian Swiss. Jamie Ian Swiss, who rated very high on this <laughs> test. Oh, Jay, was, was it at the conscious level or was it really like subliminal? No, they could, they could detect it. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so just it was the paradigm they were using was inattentional blindness. So they were getting you to focus okay. on the center of the screen where you were trying to see which line was longer, and then they would show something in the periphery which you should have ignored and you should not have attended to, at least most of the time, right? Yeah. So mon completely mundane objects like a banana, 10% of the people saw it, which is about what you would see in an inattentional blindness setup like that. So then um, other things they tested, like a modern threat, or something that we'd all be skeeved out about. They did a hypodermic needle. That was 15%. And then when they got into spider-like creatures, it jumped up above 50%. Yeah. So that proves that there's there's programming cooked into our brains to help us notice those things. Well, essentially, it's bringing it to our conscious mind. Yeah. So, I mean, it could be purely visual, right? And what's interesting is how you could... Like, have no awareness of something happening on your peripheral vision, you know? Yeah, like, no. <laughs> something's happening. Apparently, it's of some significance. But you're focused in a different direction, and it just you have no visual awareness of it. Now, if it were something like a spider, that just the, the visual shape and contrast or the way it moves even can, yeah. you're, you're in the visual system itself, before you even get to the point where you're afraid of it, it directs your attention to that thing. Steve, perhaps it's the long limbs, the gangliness aspect the of a spider. Limbs. That, that <laughs> yeah, I believe, <laughs> I believe that, that we've all seen an example of the purple recluse spider. You ever the seen purple? that? Uh, yes. Yeah, no, no, it, it, it has it, a bow tie yeah, shape. Yeah, that, the on bow tie its, shape. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's back. On its, on its neck region. <laughs> so, yeah. um, they live in dark tunnels. They do. <laughs> and, uh, they're bottom feeders, essentially. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and, and 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 they absolutely adore the metric system, from yeah. what I hear. It's very weird. They only move in millimeters. It's weird. <laughs> Bill Nye, the yes. science guy, everybody. Yeah. Welcome. Please. Um, yeah, uh, it's great to be back. It's good to see everyone. Thank you for coming on a Saturday afternoon. Beautiful day here in New York City. Beautiful outside. The kids, the kids with their uh, their street party. They're partying out there. They're crazy. They're, they're, they're the first they? gorgeous day in the spring. Yeah, yeah right. Has to be. That's the day no patients show up to your clinic. Yeah. Places packed. I know. Yes. Check it out. Are there any questions on what we've covered so far? <laughs> any clarifications we need? <laughs> we, 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 are you afraid of spiders? On. Seriously. I'm respectful of spiders. 
That's a good uh, okay. One of the things I always found very troubling, uh, I used to deliver the Washington Post. I was a paper boy. And uh, you'd walk into onto a front porch and there'd be a lot of spider webs. And, and uh, they get in your face. And there's something about that touching your face with that light pressure that's. Yeah, the touching the face. Always throws you off. And then I had a. Um, a fear of black widow spiders, but I never really saw one until I moved out west. And I don't know how many of you have seen a black widow, but how big is this auditorium in regular units? Uh, 40 meters? <laughs> it's like 40 meters from here to the back. If there's a black widow spider 40 meters away, you can see that hourglass. It is amazing. They're how big. Striking They're big guys. They, okay, I exaggerate. But just a little. That really is something. And uh, I worked with a guy who got bitten, a camera guy, photographer, and man, on his uh, forearm, his arm swelled up into a, just a heck of a thing. It would take a couple of days off. He couldn't lift his arm. So uh, whatever they got, they're really good at it. But most of the time, spiders want nothing to do with you, as the old saying goes. Sure. They're more afraid of you than you well, are you're of big. Them. You're yeah. huge. And then yeah, have yeah. you ever, just do it, do it this way. Have you ever run along in a field, you know, your native zone there? And then just falling on your face and taking a bite out of the turf. And that's kind of what a spider would be doing, right? If he's running along your arm, I think I'll just you know, take a nosedive right here, <laughs> inject with venom. But yeah, there, well, uh, that's you know, the, the thing. And the, and the other thing, have you ever seen a black widow spider web? They're just sloppy. They're just... Well, they don't need to be. Exactly. Yeah, what, don't you don't like the web? You don't like the web? You got a problem with my web? Yeah, I'll give kill you. Kill you. <laughs> Come over here. I'll give you a problem. May kill you, huh? And so uh, I really uh, have great respect for them. But apparently, the one that will get you is the brown recluse. Right? And in Washington State, where I used to live, it's not uncommon where it's more moist. Mm. But that aside, it shows you. I think it indicates how difficult it is if you're a spider to catch food. You got to have some freaking powerful venom to bring. And mad skills, like the, the things that spiders can do. I mean, they have in, incredible feats. That, that well, they do whatever a spider can. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> they spin a web any size, catch thieves just like the, like flies. Yeah, but why, why oh, would a black on. widow... <laughs> Look out! There goes the spider, man. What, is it just me? No, we were. <laughs> I wanted you to break in a song. Let's yeah, go. Yeah, we were waiting for the no, song. Right. <laughs> Isn't it overkill, though? Why would... Why would a black widow need such powerful venom? Why? Well, I think they barely get a good bite. I think a lot of times they, uh, you know, they almost miss. But most of the, you know, the so-called uh, European brown spider, they, they just go on with their business, do their thing. And as we say, you know, without spiders in the world, there'd be just way too many insects. Oh, that's, yeah. that's for yeah. sure. I love Something them. else would have yeah. evolved to eat them, yes. Big plus for spiders. One more cool point that we, we were talking about. There's something called approach avoidance, and humans have this. We don't like things that are basically coming into our proximity. So particularly like when an insect is buzzing around your head or Bill <laughs> Nye like walks on stage, like what the hell? So we have a lot of, we have a lot of things that are cooked into us that protect us from our environment, and, and that's one of them. Uh, Bill, I did want to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, we could spread it out throughout the show. I want to start. Last night you were telling us about a, a new mission that's coming up for, with the solar sail. The solar sail. Yeah, you got to tell us about it. Oh, that. yes. Awesome. I love you all. For those of you who, for some reason, have not joined the Planetary Society, this is your big chance. So I, re I remember in 1977 Carl Sagan talking about 
a solar sail mission to catch up with Comet Holly. And since then, I've found, or guy I work with, found a video from from, uh, Carl Sagan being on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, from Johnny Carson being on The Tonight Show with Carl Sagan. And he, it was in 1976, so it was a little before when I first exposed to it. Anyway, the idea is light has no mass. Photons have no mass, but they have momentum. They're pure energy. And at this point, you go, what? Yeah, I know. Uh, you can do it in, rel- in uh, classical physics or in relativity, and you get the same answer. Mo- um, photons have a tiny amount of momentum. So if you have something big enough of low enough mass in the vacuum of space, it gets pushed along. So people have built solar sail missions in the past. Uh, the successful one was made by the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA. And it was about uh, five years ago. It went out to Venus, and it was going to get an orbit around Venus, but it missed. And so now it's in orbit around the sun at about the same distance as Venus. But it's a cool thing. That thing was like 600 kilos, very large. Uh, and it got a little bit of push or measurable amount of push from the sun. The Planetary Society, 18 years later, is, uh, what did I say, 18? I think I mean 28 years later is launching a uh, solar sail. So we got an email last night. We're, the f- launch has slipped to the 20th of May. So for those of you who are planning, you can get down to Cape Canaveral <laughs> for the launch of our solar sail. So this thing is part of um, a NASA program called ELENA, Educational Launch of Nanosatellites. So we're going to launch as a secondary payload on an Air Force rocket. And for those of you who remember anything about the planetary side. We tried to launch one in 2005 on a Russian uh, Cold War ballistic missile that was repurposed to go into low Earth orbit. But instead of going into low Earth orbit, it's in an exotic area called the Barents Sea, which is... That's a really <laughs> low orbit, though. It's really <laughs> nah, you haunted low Earth orbit, they got you lower. Uh, there it is, the uh, very compelling uh, Russian uh, inflection. Da. Da. Yeah, so anyway, this is a real rocket. It's an Atlas V. And uh, the reason I got involved in all this is, I ha- as I've told everybody a thousand times, I had one course from Carl Sagan. Changed my life. Planetary Society was started in 1980. I got on the mailing list. I joined. I've been a member ever since. And now I'm the CEO. And our beloved Neil deGrasse Tyson is on the board. Scott Hubbard, who the Mars czar, is on the board. Jim Bell, the guy who takes all the pictures on Mars. Heidi Hamill, the Outer Planets astronomer. These are all board members. John Logson, the uh, world's foremost authority in the history of space. And we're going to finally launch this thing. Like, it's Carl Sagan's dream almost 30 years later. It's very exciting. And it was done by you, by people who just thought it was cool. People just thought it was a cool thing to invest in because... It has the potential to greatly lower the cost of uh, missions to the moon. A mission is, is airplane, uh, aerospace talk for spaceship. Uh, spaceships to the moon, spaceships to the outer planets, well, to any planet. And the idea, you guys, when you fire a chemical rocket, a regular rocket, <laughs> except if you're in outer space, there's no sound. It's just... <laughs> so it, burns, it burns for a few minutes, and then you're done turn it off, but the solar sail gets a tiny push all the time, day and night. Except, wait, there's no night. 
Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's really cool. And it's, this thing is very small. It's 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 30 centimeters. It's smaller than a shoebox, smaller than a loaf of bread. But a sail deploys uh, bigger than the area of the stage. It's really something, 32 square meters. And the reason is the stuff is so thin. It's this mylar, super shiny mylar. And this is another thing where you go, no way. And I must say, first of all, way. If it were black, the solar sail were jet black or um, uh, a black body, if you know that expression, uh, completely, theoretically completely absorptive, it would get one oomph, one quantum worth of oomph for every photon. But being super crazy shiny, it gets, well, theoretically, it gets exactly twice that because it bounces off. So it's so shiny. How shiny is it's it? It's so shiny that it is quite reasonable that we will be able to see it at sunrise and sunset, even though it's very small, but the orbit is quite low. Naked eye? Naked eye, yeah. Oh, and uh, it's very reasonable. We'll have an expansion of uh, something called the ISS above, Interna International Space Station above. Uh, it's a Raspberry Pi computer. You put in your latitude and longitude. You can even put in your altitude. So here in New York, I put in, I'm 70 meters off the street. Charming, hilarious. And it will tell you where the space station is in the sky. So the same guy who's... Uh, it's just cool. He's a grandfather who loves computer programming. Uh, Liam Kennedy has got another one rigged up for light sail. So you can, you can go to his website, ISS above or light sail above, get your little raspberry pie and know where exactly in the sky to look for this thing. Hey, Bill, um, you mentioned that the, the solar sail was as big as a stage. Do you have a feeling for how big a sail would have to be for even a small probe? Well, this is, no, this is a, a CubeSat, which is a NASA standard. So you could easily claim this to be a small probe. Like, uh, this is, uh, this is something that you can put a bunch of instruments in. And it has cameras. It has happy cameras. And it has, uh, the ability to tack or steer, tack like a sailboat. So it does it with two ways. It has a momentum wheel, which is, you and I would call it a gyroscope. A spinning thing, and it gets its electricity from solar panels, which are on the outside. And then um, it has a torque rod or torque rods, and these are electromagnetic sticks that uh, react against the Earth's magnetic field. And it's uh, it's fine in low Earth orbit. It works great. They're very well understood. There's no moving parts. The control law is very uh, manageable and so on. Can I ask you a question about the Mars mission? Well, I think you just did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, curious. which Mars mission? We love the Mars missions. Well, I, you know, Steve told me after, I guess you guys at one point talked last night. And you, 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 Mars you, One. Yeah, you gave an opinion about Mars One. Yeah, well, my, the thing is, my opinion is correct. <laughs> so <laughs> Those are the best opinions well, to have. It's just a huge time saver, I mean, I think. Yes, but what about Mars One? So what's, I mean, I'm just curious, like, what do you think is going to happen? Are they, are they going to do it? Do you think they'll actually launch? No, and do you, I don't think okay. they'll, sorry, I don't think they'll launch. Uh, no. No, I mean, I love the guy, Boz, but, uh, you know, he plans to go to Mars for $4 billion U.S. And I'll just tell you, you can't. The Air Force can't brush its spy satellite teeth for $4 billion. I mean, it's just, you guys, it's just not enough money. And the plan is to get all these, mm, all the support from commercial ventures. 
And you, Steve, you think you knew the number last night. The la- the first person to die is estimated at 58 days or something? Yeah, but that it depends on if you go by. I think it was the MIT report. MIT, is that, yeah. Yeah, but that's, if they do things a certain way, they don't have to do them that way. Yeah. But so if you go one way to Mars, look, you guys, everybody, where are we? We're in New York State, okay? <laughs> and it's lovely here, and it's about to be spring. The crocuses are croaking. And uh, the daffodils are dilling, and it's all cool. I was in um, a store yesterday where there's just a very narrow space between two huge stone buildings, and there were birds chirping away. You know, springtime. The forsythia are sithing. They were. That's what? A... <laughs> he, he was trying to be funny. <laughs> I'm just playing <laughs> along. I was. Yeah, but the he, forsythia are the forsythia are sithing. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to throw yeah. you off. As is so often the case, I was running my mouth and did not exactly hear exactly what you said. Sorry, it was brilliant. The sithings and forsythias are sithing. So, uh, but blossoms do blossom uh, along that line. Have so you we're ever, talking about the Mars? Yeah, yeah. Have you ever? Do you know the state motto of California? Does anybody know it? Uh, Isn't it? Yeah, man. <laughs> Dude, that might be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's Eureka. I found it. Oh, awesome. So these European settlers come over the hill, you know, and orange trees at this point are like weeds. And you go to the, some place like the Sacramento River, and there's salmon as big as this table swimming up the thing, all the protein you'd ever want. And uh, it gets to the point in California, so out of hand, the freaking rocks are made of gold. That's how, that's how crazy it got. Anyway, if you go to Mars, anybody, it's not like that. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> no. But for, I mean, there's no liquid water, and uh, people tell, "Well, oh, do some in situ resource utilization, some ISRU. Yeah. Just take a nuclear reactor up there, volatilize some Martian rocks, and get some extract some oxygen, and then we'll be set. Piece of cake. Yes, with our nuclear reactor that we put on a spaceship that we have, and and then and successfully land it on this yeah <laughs> successfully land and there's no protein you know swimming around there's no vitamin c falling off trees and you guys as soon as you open the door you're going to notice you can't breathe i mean you can't breathe there's no air like it's not it's a different model okay it's a model is a modern word for whole approach deal thing system everything uh, you were ta- you talked about how four billion dollars isn't enough to do this. Do you, in your, do you think there is a dollar value that you could put on it in which it would become well possible? If, I notice I did not cue this man. I did not. We did not prepare anything. So, the planetary side just sponsored a workshop. You know, we didn't build anything. I mean, you go to a workshop and you make stuff, change the oil. No, we didn't do anything. But change the oil. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how you'd say that though, Bill? Well, like, do you when you when you're when the light comes on in your car and you know it's time to go and you go to like Valvoline or whatever, do you walk in and go, "Yes, I'd like some uh, synthetic oil, please." And well, what can I do for you today? Well, I'd like you to change the oil. Just give it to me once, goddamn it! <laughs> change the oil. <laughs> uh, the problem, <laughs> the problem that we have with me. Is sort of what you see is what you get, you know. So I probably do say, change the oil. That's cool. <laughs> uh, but I um, <clears throat> live in New York. I don't need a car, so that's that's a big step. But I've been around cars. Uh, change the oil. That aside, just 
On Mars, it's a very inhospitable place. And I want everybody to kind of think about this. You know, we, uh, all the guys here on stage, first of all, are guys. Secondly, we're all of European descent. And so these people came from Europe, and they went across North America doing stuff. And the people that lived in North America, first of all, they came from Asia and just started killing every mammal they could find and went all the way. So killed all the birds, killed everything. Uh, and this pioneering spirit, live off the land, I guess is admirable and so on. But uh, you're not going to be able to do that forever. Earth is kind of it. There is no place more hospitable. You you go to elementary schools, and it's fun, and you say, what's your favorite planet? And a lot of people will still say, Pluto, which is fun. Uh, Pluto's be a planet, and then you get a fist fight. And whatever. But <laughs> if it's... For me, what's your favorite planet? It's Earth. I mean, all the way. All my friends are here. (laughs) It's where I grew up. You know, my neighborhoods are here. If it's Earth versus Saturn in the solar system cup or whatever, I'm Earth, man. I mean, it's just how it is. And so I think people are going to have to soon think differently about about the Earth. We're not going to be able just to all get on spaceships and go to another planet. Well, you're going to have to in four billion years. Okay, okay. four billion years. Well, that's a ways off then, isn't it? Yeah. Will humans look like humans? Probably not. It's very troubling. So so you think that we should be focusing our, our the, the money on different goals? Or yeah, I remember, didn't, didn't Neil deGrasse Tyson at TAM a few years ago tell you, like, boots on the ground very dramatically? And I remember that moment on stage. I mean, where, where do you, where do you boots stand? boots on the ground on Mars. Yeah. But just for a visit, yes, to have a look around, look for signs of water and life. Everybody, if we were to discover life on another world, it would change this one. (laughs) No, I mean, if we found that there were evidence of bacterial mats, what are the stromatolites on Mars, it would change the course of history. It'd be like Copernicus or Galileo or one of those guys, right? It would uh, change the way everybody thinks about everything. Now, there's a picture uh, for those of you listening on the radio. Uh, there's a picture on the um, radio is kind of an older term, isn't it? On the podcast, podcast. Yeah, yeah. on the electric computer machine, yeah. On the Marconi, <laughs> as you said. Uh, the, the we Abacus. have a picture of Enceladus, uh, which is a moon of uh, Jupiter, and uh, it has icy cracks, has an icy crust because the surface is exposed to the icy blackness of space, where Actually, they change Europa. Say, it's Europa. Hmm? It's not Europa. Europa. What did I say? Enceladus. Enceladus. I did yes. say Jupiter, but Enceladus is a moon of Saturn. Yeah. I, and they're not unrelated, Bill. Get your head in the game. On the moon of Saturn, Enceladus, people discovered these plumes, these geysers squirting into space. So it is presumed there is some evidence based on Hubble Space Telescope observations that there are similar plumes above the surface of this world pictured here above us, uh, Europa, which is the moon of Jupiter. Now, Europa has twice as much seawater as the Earth. And or it might have a little more than that. And uh, the surface is icy because it's exposed to the blackness of space, three Kelvin above absolute zero kind of thing. But below that, because of the gravitational squeezing of its 25 Earth hour orbit around Jupiter, there's liquid water, liquid seawater. If there's been seawater someplace for four and a half billion years, it would just change the world to find right. living things there. Yeah. So you're saying that the planet is ejecting that into outer space? It's very reasonable, yeah. And so is it, because Enceladus is, so it's reasonable that Europa is. Uh, so are there Europanians 
swimming around under oh, the ice. Oh, right? that was good. And do they have <laughs> do they have grim jokes in Europeanian talk? Like no, I hope for I don't. Sake, I hope not. I hope I don't swim near that crack in the ice and get thrown in outer space. <laughs> wouldn't it be cool if if the wouldn't it be cool though if one of the other planets in our solar system seeded the Earth? Well, this we is had, the coolest thing ever. Right. So if you can go to Mars with the right explorers, explorers, and poke around with your rock hammer and your hand lens and your microscope or whatever it is, and you found something still alive, some microbe, some Mars probe, does it have DNA? Do, 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 do. That's the question. And so yeah. then Mars clear was for sure hit with something very large, an impactor, about three billion years ago, and substantial pieces of Mars were tossed into outer space. And whoo, 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 except it's in outer space, so it's just whoo, whoo. Uh, these things came to the Earth. You can buy Mars rocks if you're into it, uh, little ones. And uh, so it is not crazy. It's extraordinary, but not crazy to suggest that life started on Mars and we are all descendants of Martians. Right. Yeah, so actually, the reason I ha happen to have a picture of Europa queued up is because uh, one of the news items we wanted to talk about, which Evan's going to give us a quick summary of it, and we'll get your opinion. NASA is pretty optimistic that this is what's going to happen. Yeah, so there was a uh, panel this past week in Washington. Not sure if you saw it, Bill. Um, but um, a lot of interesting things came out of that panel. Um, Ellen Stofan, who's the chief scientist for NASA, um, here's what she said. I mean, she's basically said that we're going to find alien life in 10 to 20 years. She's not talking about intelligent life, of course. She's talking about microbial life. Um, here's exactly what she said. I believe we're going to have strong indications of life beyond Earth in the next decade and definitive evidence in the next 10 to 20 years. We know where to look. We know how to look. And in most cases, we have the technology. Uh, 10 to 20 is 20 is not 20 is pretty reasonable. 10 is optimistic. But uh, Alan Stofan is a big friend of the Planetary Society, and so, uh, you know, we find out together. And uh, <laughs> this is pretty cool. But the deal is, uh, just historically talking some more about me, uh, I took, when I was the vice president of the board of directors of Planetary Society, I took, let's say, 10,000 postcards to congressional offices, Rohrbacher and the mythic Barbara Mikulski is a senator, uh, petitioning for a mission to Pluto. And in 2006, New Horizons, it was, that was the year 2000. In 2006, New Horizons was launched. And this summer, July 14th, Bastille Day, New Horizons will fly by Pluto. We'll have pictures of freaking Pluto. Oh, that's and it's awesome. nine Great. years after it launched. All right. That's for one thing. Then, uh, the Planetary Society has been petitioning for a couple of years now to get a mission to Europa. And it's nominally called the Europa Clipper. And this is a class of missions funded by NASA at about $600 million. And it will go out there, and people are just debating exactly what we're going to do, but fly through what we believe are these plumes. Now, you're going at super fast spacecraft speeds. But just spiritually, can you imagine, like, just flying through the plume, this geyser, if it's there, and then counting flies on the windshield. You know, wouldn't it just be just freaking amazing? I mean, it may not it's, it may not be so easy to do, but it is a cool idea. And it would change the world. If you had a some sort of aerogel, you know, this ballistic yeah, right. stuff, you, know, you shoot stuff into it and it absorbs the energy. 
and you could find some Europanian microbe, man, it would be Copernicus. Galileo would be, hey, Bill, you know the Pope accepts evolution. Isn't that great? Uh, yeah. Yes. That's good. Yeah. Now what? <laughs> There's life on another world, nothing like ours. Okay. Well, interesting you bring that up because... The Discovery Institute, or the Disco Toot, as I like to call them, <laughs> on their blog, uh, wrote a response to NASA saying, well, you know, even if we discover microbial life on Mars, that doesn't mean that evolution is true. Because it's possible, you actually invoke your point, it's possible that life from Earth seeded Mars, and then we're just seeing Earthicans who have transplanted to, to, to you have transplanted to Mars? Yeah, uh, I, but the mechanism isn't the same. Well, it, it misses the point. Oh, that. Right. It, it <laughs> they also don't, they don't get science. He doesn't even. Yeah, doesn't even get the the question. Still, would be well before you say that Earth microbes seeded Mars, and so it's not an independent evolution. Let's find out if the critters have DNA, right? Let's find out what their biochemistry is and what their genetics are, and if they're different enough. They might have a completely different genetic code. Which would than just be wacky. would be the second genesis or whatever. Yeah. And if it's the same, that would be wacky. Oh, it's so all wacky. Then that tell, so no matter what we find, it's going to be awesome. You could have a triple helix. Wait, that's right. Yes. <laughs> and there may have three sexes. You know, <laughs> Lucky. Like, True. Like, a, like another major league or something. <laughs> so, uh, um, you guys, in a hundred years, people will probably know, almost certainly know, whether there's life on Europa, whether there's life on Mars or evidence of life on Mars. But we are living at that moment when we could find out. So uh, along this line, last week, the, at the same time that the NASA, the NASA Advisory Council, the NAC, noticed that the N in NAC is in turn an acronym. It's an acronym within an acronym. What could go wrong? Why are things over budget? Anyway, uh, <laughs> at the NASA Advisory Council, they asked about a workshop that the Planetary Society had where we brought in 70 people who are experts on rocket science and um, planetary science, planetary geology and exploration. These are the real deal people. And uh, we saw a presentation, which is very compelling, that we could... If just adjusting the NASA budget for inflation, you could send an orbital mission to Mars in 2033. And 2033 is not an arbitrary number. It's You can only go to Mars every 26 months because of the orbits of Earth and Mars. And, tw and every once in a while, Mars and Earth are just a little closer than they are other times because their orbits aren't quite round. They're ellipses. And so 2033 is a real good one. And that it's significant, like that that little bit of closeness actually. It just lowers save. the price of fuel and time, and you know people are going to have to spend 200 days in space, breathing and riding bicycles to nowhere, and perhaps most importantly, getting along. You know, mm -hmm. for 200 days. Look at the trouble we've had yeah. just here. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, it's the thing is that we people believe that the bone marrow loss. Bone calcium loss has been addressed by drugs and a regimen of exercise. And there, people believe that they are close, pretty close, if you threw a little more money out, to, to recycling all the water, not to creep you out. Uh, but your human waste would be used again, like dinosaur spit. 
and it would be uh, really an extraordinary mission. And I remind everybody what an effect uh, the Apollo 8 photograph had on the world. If you don't know the Earthrise photo, it's really something. We really saw the Earth for the first time from deep space. If you're right up to Mars, it'll be amazing. Real, real quick, am I am I overconfident on this? Because to me, it seems like it's a no-brainer. On these moons, you've got you got you know tidal forces creating a water environment. You've got minerals. You've got billions of years. Isn't it? How confident are you that there's microbial life there? And if you're as confident as I am, why the hell don't we make this a top top priority? Because it would be the discovery of the millennia. You you should join the Planetary Society. <laughs> I, I am going to. So uh, this is what we do. We go to the U.S. Congress especially and say, come on, this could change the world. And here's, a, to me, a fascinating thing about human nature. The two people who really support this in the U.S. government are Adam Schiff, who represents Caltech and then in turn the Jet Propulsion Lab, where they make the word lab. I don't know if you guys have been there. It's a factory where they make one-of-a-kind spaceship things. It's very cool. And then um, it's where they built the Mars rover and stuff. And then the other guy who's just a huge fan of this is John Culberson, who's from a congressional uh, congressional district just north of Houston. And he, I've been in his office. He has the Bible right there. He talks about uh, his relationship, his faith, his relationship to God all the time. And in the same paragraph, his absolute certainty that there is life on Europa. And he strongly believes that he can be among the few leaders who make sure we get a mission to Europa done. And he, he is, it brings these two guys together who are politically apart on everything else. And I really, it's just one more thing about space exploration that I just find so so wonderful. It brings us together. It brings out the best in us. But man, you've hit the nail on the head. It would change the course of history for 600 million bucks. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's go. It's a morning in Iraq. You know? Uh, I know. You can't even uh, think about Yeah, you start to think about that. It drives you crazy. Yeah. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our live show at Nexus to talk about our one sponsor this week, The Great Courses. Yeah, this week, guys, we're talking about Einstein's relativity and the quantum revolution, modern physics for non-scientists. And this is presented by Richard Wolfson, Professor Richard Wolfson, who we talked about before. This is a fantastic installment in this series covering what I think is probably two of the most important and pivotal sciences that we know of. And that, of course, is relativity and quantum mechanics. You really just chock full of interesting facts and how it developed, what's it all about, all the high points. I highly recommend it. I love Professor Wolfson's course, and I love lots of different courses from the great courses. You know, they're celebrating their 25th anniversary this year, and they have over 500 series on all sorts of subjects, science, mathematics, history, art, music, philosophy, and tons more. You can watch them online, download them, and streaming via via applications, DVDs, CDs, any media you need, it, they have it. So it's it's very convenient. Yeah. So guys, uh, if you act soon, you know we have a special limited time offer for the SGU listeners. So if you order from eight of the Great Courses best selling series, that includes Einstein's Relativity and the Quantum Revolution, at up to eighty percent off the original price. That's a really really good deal. Act quickly now. You could go to thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. 
All right, guys, let's get back to our live show. All right, I'm going to bring things in a little bit now to the moon. Bob, you're going to tell us. That was supposed to be funny. You're going to tell us <laughs> about. <laughs> about <laughs> no, the moment's gone. Uh, you're going to tell us about uh, lava tubes on the moon. Yeah, this was actually a bit of a disappointment uh, to me because it seems like in the future we may never see a moon-based alpha on the lunar surface. Um, how many people have have any idea what I'm talking about? Raise your hands. I'm kind of curious. Clap your right. hands. I, I feel sorry for you other people. But what, what I mean is that scientists are claiming that they have, they have um, some good research to show that there may actually be on the moon uh, lunar uh, lava tubes that are big enough to hold an entire city, even as big big enough to hold a quarter of the city we're in right now. So that's that's pretty amazing. So why do they even believe this? What led them to believe that? And uh, first off, was there even vul um, volcanism on the uh, on the moon? And yeah, clearly there there was. I mean, the maria on the moon are those dark spots or flooded lava plains. Um, also, there's th there's a geological feature on the moon called. Uh, sinuous rills, and that's basically a channel that often leads away from extinct volcanoes where, where lava flowed. Um, water, of course, water would never have flow, flowed on the moon because it was never there. Is this picture strictly a volcano, or is it where the lunar surface was heated up very, uh, real hot by an impactor? Yeah, that's a good question. And that, and I think, Bobby, I think we talked about it maybe a year ago about the fact that that's that's a, a very specific question. But there was some evidence that maybe all of the Maria and, some, and what we were previously thought were due to in, almost entirely to impacts may have in fact been done, been caused by primitive lunar volcanism. So the thing was so, so hot. I, How hot was it? It was so hot, it got a crust, and then there was enough moon quaking to squirt volcanoes. Yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there definitely, I mean, it was, it did cool very rapidly, but there was a period where there was definitely magma down there that just that came up for whatever reason. And either a volcano or it could be crater hits could have. So anyway, you, what up. you're talking about? We'll have a big cave. We'll all live on a cave yeah. on the moon. But right. why, what, would are you saying that we'd pressurize it and make put atmosphere in there? Well, build inside of it. Well, so, sure. I mean, they what they did was <laughs> excuse me. Well, sure. <laughs> no, no. That, that is actually <laughs> how else would you do that? That is one of the out the outside. Yeah, it's that is one of the outside possibilities. They, I think it's conceivable that it's that you could pressurize these things, but that's not even the bit the big advantages. The big advantages you'd be safe from micro micrometeoroids. You'd be safe from solar and cosmic rays. The the the, the, the the you know the temperature shifts are are huge day to night. So those are the big ones right there. The pressurizing, who knows? It it, it may be possible. Um, it, but these are the point is that these are so stable. Um, based on these calculations. And the way they went about it was kind of interesting. They they looked at the lunar rocks, they looked at the lunar environment, and they plugged that information into their civil engineering technology that we have today on Earth to dig tunnels. And they found out that um, these things can be incredibly stable up to, say, 5,000 meters. And one quote here from David Blair, who's a graduate at, at Purdue, he said, we found that if lunar lava tubes existed with a strong arched shape like those on the Earth, they would be stable at sizes up to 5,000 meters or several miles wide on the moon. Now, this can never happen on the Earth, obviously, because the gravity is so much more intense and we've got weathering, which doesn't exist on the moon. But this could, could potentially exist on, uh, on, the, on the moon. So, uh, so this is pretty cool. I think uh, it's definitely worth pursuing. Right. We've, we definitely want to build underground, either on the moon or on Mars, for all the reasons right. that you stated. And this... It says, well, maybe there's some pre-existing caves. So, you guys, so what is your digging. model? What is your idea of this moon base? Well, I mean, it, even if we get there with pretty small and pre-built 
habitats, get them under the ground somehow. Are they going to have wheels in them that you run on? I don't it's know, a maybe. Trail, I think. Yeah, it's possible. You know, they have some, or they, or they, we build them in the tunnel. You know, if, if we have anyway, the capability. The model to me for this is Antarctica. Is what Antarctica, where we have a base oh, yeah. of scientists, and it takes a lot of uh, support to keep it going. You know, to keep oh, yeah. it comfortable for people there. And uh, <clears throat> I just don't. I just really. I think nowadays, just going to the moon to set up tent, a tent and camp out, I think, is really hard. Absolutely. If, we would need a fleshed out Earth moon. Well, plus, and somebody's going to pay for it. Of course, all the money yeah. spent in space is actually spent on Earth and blah, blah, blah. Right. But, but if, the, if there were huge caverns on, in the Antarctic, would, do you think we would t- make use of them? If they were already there and, and you, as soon as you go down there, you would, it would be a little bit more hospitable. Yeah, that's than, pretty reasonable. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of the idea, I yeah, think. Yeah. And who knows when, how long it's going to take to take advantage of this, but it's, I think it's worth exploring. So, I'll end then saying that uh, I don't think we may never see a, a moon-based alpha on the surface, but hopefully we will still see those Eagle transporters that were so cool on Space 1999. They were cool. The guy who built those models, Steve, did uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, did the ships on Space Odyssey. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, cool. Cool, cool. I like that. Bill, do you mind if I ask you a non-astronomy-related question? Uh, no, you just did. Yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, yes. All right. So my listeners w- would eviscerate me if I didn't ask you this question. You probably know what's coming. I probably do. A lot of the skeptical movement is fairly pro-GMO and has been highly critical Genetically of modified organisms. Genetically modified organisms. And critical of a lot of the uh, anti-GMO movement, which is largely pseudoscientific. Uh, and previously, you have stated you were concerned about the effects of GMO, but then you've given some indications that maybe... Your opinion on this matter has evolved. Evolved. Which, which evolved. Given some indications. Yeah, so <laughs> I, uh, I did a show called The Eyes of Nye, and uh, I had some very, I uh, interviewed some people who had really strong opinions, and they, I, uh, I agree with them. That if, here's how it went. <clears throat> there's two questions, uh, two words rather, excuse me, there's two words. The first word we have to talk about is modify. The second word we have to talk about is safe. So when you modify organisms, people have been doing that for how long have they been farming? 10,000 years. 10,000. And I remind everybody there is nothing natural about farming. I mean, without human, or in a sense, except humans are a product of evolution and so on and so on. But a farm, if you let it go, it reverts to uh, grassland or forest or whatever you have the situation. All right, so... Uh, to modify organisms, you know, the grapes and tomatoes and cows and whatever we have running around today are a result of 10,000 years of messing around. Selective breeding. Selective breeding, what Darwin called artificial selection. Now, artificial in the 19th century, I think, was a little different usage than we, you know, except for certain people at certain cocktail parties. Humans are not really artificial. You know, uh, <laughs> but they're inducing changes, okay, or generation to generation. Right, so that's one kind of modification. And so the question is, when you put a gene in from somewhere else into an organism from a different species, transgenic species, uh, transgenic, transgenic, yeah, yeah, then is that thing still, uh, let's say, two questions, safe to eat, but much, much, much more importantly to me, is it safe in the ecosystem? So <clears throat> what happened, I think, having done some more research, 
genetically modified organisms, soybeans and, and corn, were introduced and cotton, were introduced kind of the same weekend as uh, the bovine spongiform encephalitis, the mad cow disease, BSE, in Europe. And people in Europe got very concerned. If you got the Ministry of Agriculture that thinks it's okay to feed ground-up cows to cows, that is, to force cows to be cannibals, then can you trust them with their genetically modified transgenic crops? And so it got, in Europe especially, genetically modified organisms got a very bad rap. And uh, because it got conflated or mixed together, I think, with uh, this BSE thing. All right. What you don't want is the unintended consequences. So when you when you breed wheat by shaking the pollen of one weed plant, weed plant, wheat plant onto the eggs or ova of another, the way George Washington did with a magnifying glass, you can be pretty sure that you're not going to introduce a species that's going to uh, wreak havoc or unexpected consequences in the ecosystem. So the great, amazing, just amazing thing that these guys figured out was how to put a gene over... Okay, so there, there's a herbicide called glyphosate, which goes by the brand name Roundup, and it is like black magic. It inhibits the shikimic acid pathway, the second-to-last step in plant metabolism, making more plant. It kills it. So if you put Roundup on any green plant, it just freaking kills it. Unless this plant has been engineered, has a gene uh, from an, another species put in it that allows it to make the shikimic acid or complete the pathway anyway. So what happened is, with this extraordinary technology, two, two things happened. First of all, people were frightened by it because it's so deadly, kills everything, every plant. And the other thing that happened is everybody started using it. And so one of the unintended consequences in the U.S. was the monarch butterflies. There are only 10% of the monarch butterflies left than there used to be even 20 years ago. That's not very long ago, everybody, 20 years ago. And it's uh, mostly a result of the loss of their habitat. And the loss of their habitat has been urban spread, urban sprawl. And glyphosate kills milkweed. And milkweed is the plant. There's a couple varieties of milkweed, but there's one variety of milkweed that the, milk, that the moth, uh, the butterflies, just have to have. And so you, you can argue, or I argued, <laughs> that uh, by not going about farming in this extraordinary way, you would not have an unintended consequence like the de devastation of the monarch butterfly population. But upon further review, I think the problem is not inherent, not at all, has almost nothing to do with genetically modifying the plants. Instead, it has to do with just every sort of agricultural urban planning scheme. And by the way, last week I flew, I mean, well, I was in a plane, to Minneapolis, and uh, what about your carbon footprint? I know, okay, okay. I flew to Minneapolis to the butterfly meeting. No, no, no. And so they have non-governmental organizations and the behated Monsanto. They're trying to figure out how to establish what I describe as a hopscotch highway 
for monarch butterflies to get from Mexico to Canada and back. It really is. These butterflies are just extraordinary. I mean, they're just like, what the heck? I've watched them. Uh, it's in my book. I've watched them. They, they can fly upwind by flying very, very close to the ground and taking advantage of wind gusts and stuff. It's really amazing. One of the things that was not known at this meeting was how far away a butterfly can smell a milkweed. And that seems to me a very important datum that we have to figure out. But they got this this big corporation there and these uh, do-gooder nonprofits like the Pheasants Forever. These are hunters that really like to have birds to in birds around in there. But the habitat the habitat for huntable birds is the same as the habitat for these butterflies. And the reason the butterflies are significant, first of all, they're important. They're beautiful. They're iconic. But my claim, and I don't think this isn't extraordinary, but if you're able to wipe out something as obvious as millions and millions of butterflies, what else have you kind of wiped out without really being aware of, right? But but I agree. I, I think that uh, the problem is not genetic modification. The problem is that we're trying to feed 7 billion people yeah. by farming. By the way, these guys in this business, ConAgra... And the behated Monsanto and everything, they're sure that they're going to have two percent less farmland in thirty years than we have today, mm-hmm. and so they believe through extraordinary or modern farming practices they can feed what'll be around nine billion people in thirty right. years. Yeah, you know there was just a few years ago there were estimates of twelve billion people, mm-hmm. but they think it'll be. People think it'll be less than only nine billion. <laughs> nine billion. And so, uh, my ambivalence about genetically modified, uh, genetically modifying crops has changed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I see that they have great value, but I also warn us all that the unintended consequences or so-called knock-on consequences are still significant, and we really don't know how to solve an obvious everybody can see it problem like the monarch butterflies. Right. So, but there there are unintended consequences to not doing things. Absolutely. Too. So, like you're not doing GMOs, you end up with more farmland, which has a greater negative impact than planting genetically modified crops. I will say, just objectively, Monsanto is in a transition from an industrial chemical company to a biotech company, and objectively, also the thing that's changed for me, and it's sort of in my defense. These guys can now assay 10,000 genomes in 10 minutes. It's some extraordinary number like that. They have increased 10 million-fold from 30 years ago, 10 million times faster. And it's done in this extraordinary technology. They have these enzymes that bind to the guanine, guanine, adenine, thymine, and um, cytosine, and then you shine light on it, and these things respond to the specific frequencies of light, and they can assay the gene sequence in almost an instant. It's just, I mean, the speed of light. And so now they can grow hundreds of thousands of varieties of plants, not hundreds of thousands of individual plants. Everybody does that. Hundreds of thousands of individual of varieties of plants and assess how they interact with the ecosystem. And it's another, it reminds me, when I worked at Boeing, I worked for a guy who was the DER, the Designated Engineering Representative for the FAA, for the Federal Aviation Administration. And so you're trusting, the government is trusting a guy who's an engineer 
who takes it seriously, who kids, whose kids fly on the planes, to be the first line of defense. And the Department of Agriculture has a similar arrangement with these guys. But I get it. I mean, Monsanto has a long way to go to win hearts, man. I mean, they just sort of don't. The only people they interact with are the farmers. They don't, you know, so. Bill, have you ever played science or fiction? Hold on, yeah. Didn't I do that with you guys a few years ago? Were yeah. we drinking? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to do it again. It's time for Science or Fiction. I want to do is I want to read you three science news items or facts. Two are real and one is fake. And then I'm going to challenge you all to tell me which one is the fake. What we'll first do is poll the audience and then I will get expert consultation from the panel and then we'll see how much influence you've had on the audience. We have a theme for this week's show. The theme is American history. Ah. Okay. Welcome our friends in Japan. <laughs> Here we go. Item number one. Aaron Burr killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel while Burr was the sitting vice president under Jefferson, making Burr the only vice president to be a hunted fugitive. Number two. Andrew Jackson was the target of the first presidential assassination attempt, which he survived because of the unlikely misfiring of two pistols. And item number three. During his presidency, Thomas Jefferson proposed a formal alliance with England to resolve their differences, but was opposed by the Federalists, partly leading to the War of 1812. Well, first, we're going to get the audience's opinion. Then, then we'll get the expert opinion. So I'm going to do the George Robb method, where you're going to clap once when I bring my hand down. Okay, if you think the one about Aaron Burr is the fiction, clap. If you think the one about Andrew Jackson Jackson is the fiction, clap. And if you think the one about Thomas Jefferson is the fiction, clap. Even oh, th I think three yeah. had the edge. Three had the edge. Okay, yeah. now Bill, uh, tell us what you think. And I just don't you. remember hearing anything about Andrew Jackson almost getting shot. Aaron Burr was killed in the duel. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Jefferson tried to resolve conflict. The word alliance, that that may be wrong. It may be the wrong word. I wouldn't be surprised if he tried sort of some sort of rapprochement kind of thing. So I'm doing it by elimination, not by knowledge. All right. So Andrew Jackson's the fiction. Yeah, yeah. All right. Evan? Um, I, I'll just jump to where I think is the fiction. I think the third one's a fiction. Thomas Jefferson It was never really... Uh, fond of England, as best as I understand, he was more of a French, uh, uh, uh Franco, uh, file. Thank you. Um, so, uh, did his, did his, uh, did he sort of evolve his position with England as through his presidency? I really don't know, but I'm just thinking that it never got to the point where he would suggest an alliance with his most hated enemy. So I think that one's fiction. Okay. Jay? I, I find it very odd or strange to think that a, a U.S. Pre vice president would be involved in a real duel. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not very good with history, but like, really, these guys, these guys like literally pulled out guns and said, "We're going to shoot at each other." Like, no, I'm going to say that one's a fiction. I don't think that happened. Okay, Bob. Gee, I mean, dueling was it's a way of life back then. Those were the days. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but it just, but just Honor Bob, doesn't it seem a little weird that like one of the United States vice presidents was in a gun duel? 
It, yeah, it does. But lots of weird stuff happened back then. Uh, I'm going to, I really, I can't add to what anyone said here. I'm going to pull uh, a GWB and go with Bill and select, and Andrew Jackson as a fiction. Okay, so good. We're all over the place on the panel. So they were completely unhelpful. Well, let's see who was most persuasive. If you think Aaron Burr is the fiction, clap. Andrew Jackson is the fiction, clap. A little bit more there. And Thomas Jefferson is the fiction, clap. Still going to give the audience to uh, yep. number three, Thomas Jefferson. Let's take these in order. Uh-oh. Aaron Burr killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel while Burr was the sitting vice president under Jefferson, making Burr the only vice president to be a hunted fugitive. He was secretary that, of treasury. That one is science. That is true. Sorry, Jay. It's, I, I thought it was pretty common knowledge that yeah. Aaron Burr killed Yeah, Andrew Burr killed Andy Jackson, but I mean Andrew Jackson. Uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton, but he was vice president. He was vice. Mm-hmm. He was act, that was the bit I thought might be. Yeah. He was the sitting vice president. He became a hunted fugitive while he was vice so president. So you guys say, you know, just think how extraordinary. Just people just killing each other. It just You spend your whole life learning Latin and Greek, and you memorize the map of the world at that time. You might learn navigation for ships, and then somebody just kills you. Honor. Yeah. It was I like, honor. you agree to take the risk of getting killed. Just like, you know. Go live somewhere else. Like, you know. Can you refuse a duel? Can you say, okay, so this, be, what happened. this is what happened. So, first of all, Hamilton and Burr hated each other. They hated each other. Hamilton act, may have been responsible for Jefferson beating Burr out in terms of becoming president. At the time, this is before the amendment that changed it, the, the person who got the second most vote became vice president, right? So Jefferson got the first number of votes. He was the president. And... Uh, um, Thomas Jefferson, yeah, and then so Burr was vice president because he got the second most votes. So that Hamilton probably did. So then Aaron Burr was running for the governor of New York, and Alexander Hamilton scuttled that for him too. So Burr thought his political career was over, and the only way he could resurrect it was to regain his honor by killing Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Hamilton was concerned that if he refused the duel, his career would be over because everyone would think he was a coward. This was just the culture of the time. And so he felt he had no choice but to accept. Dueling was illegal in New York State, so they rode across the river to New Jersey, had the duel there. <laughs> yeah. They had the duel in New Jersey. Yeah, so that, that, left the body there when they were done. That right? tradition <laughs> is still with us a little bit. Yeah, right? <laughs> Burr killed Hamilton. He shot him, and, Burr, and Hamilton died a day later of the wound. And, and Burr miscalculated. His career was actually over at that point because he became a hunted murderer. Uh, however, he actually got he, the uh, court case against him. You know, he won the court case. We actually, they didn't, weren't, he wasn't convicted for killing Alexander Hamilton. All right, because they, they, they had an agreement. We're going to try this. Yeah. Well, it was, it was that was a whole complication. He was prosecuted improperly, and he got all ah. technicality. Ah, yeah. The prop, improper. So Andrew Jackson, going on to number two, Andrew Jackson was the target of the first presidential assassination attempt, which he survived because of the unlikely misfiring of two pistols. Who thought you guys think that's fiction? I thought it was fiction. Bob, but Bob it's and Bill. It's by elimination, not yeah, the audience. But you know, twenty percent or so of the audience thinks this one is fiction, and this one is science. Ah, oh, really? Cool. Sorry, this one is science. Andrew Jackson, by the way, was a total badass. Oh yeah. If you don't know anything about him, he he really amazing life story this guy had. He he actually was involved in an un countable number of duels no one is sure it was at least like five or six some estimates are up to, i read up to a hundred but 
He actually, while he was president, he had two bullets in him from previous duels that he won. The, the, the iconic story, oh the iconic story is he, he showed up to a duel against one guy where he wore, and Jackson wore a heavy cloak so that the guy couldn't tell where his body ended and the cloak began as sort of a throw out, throw him off visually. Nevertheless, and he insisted the other guy shoot first. And then, so the, the other guy shot him in the chest. The bullet lodged like a centimeter from his heart, centimeter from his heart. <laughs> and Jackson, played it as if the guy missed. He he was such a badass. He just oh. he hid the fact that he was sh- just shot in the chest. I'd be crying and on the floor. How do you exactly. hide that? But or yeah, dead. Just, just he, visualize that. He, he shot took, in the chest by a musket ball. Yeah, right? and he's like, you missed. You know, then <laughs> he, <laughs> he, <laughs> shoot, he shoots and kills the other guy dead right there. He and then he goes over to him and made sure that he died thinking he missed it. Right? Because he just wanted to uh, rub it in. And and then he had to go get taken care of because he was had a bullet lodged an inch from his heart. Get and taken he care of. He survived. And so Jackson was the guy that chased all the first Americans out of the whole. He did. I mean, he was. He did. Yeah. He did the the Trail of Tears. Very complicated. But he but he adopted some orphaned Indian children, American you know American he was uh, a, natives. Just a kind of guy. But but then he yeah it was really w- very strange not Contrary, certainly not yeah. progressive by modern standards you know very regressive he was also very anti free speech when it came to abolitionism you know so very very mixed but but very interesting character he so someone did try to assassinate him the guy pulled out two pistols misfire misfire the pistol pistols were rolled, and then Andrew one. Jackson chased the guy down with a cane. <laughs> after that i mean you you know most presidents would get ducked into their carriage yeah, right. or whatever at that point. But you know, the, the, his guys jumped on him, and they got the guy. They examined the pistols, and they were in perfect working order. They were just chance misfirings, and so, of two simul, you know, two pistols. They said the chances of both of those uh, working pistols misfiring at the same time was tens of thousands to one against. Them. I'm open-minded, but I bet there was something wrong with it. Maybe, but that's that's the history that we have now. You know, but it's, who was the guy? I mean, he's lost to history. You know, well, well, they know him. I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but it was just some. Well, Andrew Jackson beat the shit out of him with a cane, right? <laughs> no, he never got to him. Oh, okay. <laughs> he tried to. His, his boys jumped on him first, but yeah. Anyway, read up about Andrew Jackson, total badass president. Okay, which means we need during that today we need a badass president. <laughs> during oh, oh, careful what you wish. for. Careful what you wish for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. During his all right, let's we go got, on we need a guy who is a badass without. Continually saying that he's a badass. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Number three. During his presidency, Thomas Jefferson proposed a formal alliance with England to resolve their differences, but was opposed by the Federalists, partly leading to the War of 1812. That is the fiction. And Evan, you got it exactly right. Thank you. Jefferson hated England. England represented everything that Jefferson hated. And he, he favored an alliance. Well, at this time in history, the United States had an alliance with France. Mm-hmm. We were still allied with them because the French helped us win the Revolutionary War against England, and that was still in place. But during his presidency, France and England, in fact, all of Europe went to war with England, basically, at this point in time, but mostly France. And so the question was, well, is the United States going to be neutral, or are they going to get involved? And if they're going to be neutral, are they going to be neutral favoring France or neutral favoring England? Jefferson, actually even before he became president, wanted to be neutral favoring France because he hated England. Hamilton wanted to be neutral favoring England. The the, uh, the Federalists were actually kind of more pro-England at that time. 
So I just flipped it. Yeah, Jefferson hated England. We ended up being neutral and just running guns for both sides, uh, which was good for our economy until they both sides outlawed the U.S. doing doing uh, trade with the U.S. So then that kind of sucked. Uh, and that led eventually to the War of 1812. That's what led to the War of 1812, was England shutting down our trade with Europe and supplying them against England in the war. And let the record show, I did express skepticism about the word alliance. Alliance. But yeah, yes, yeah. you did. You did. But that wasn't enough to get it right. Now, the reason why this is the theme of the uh, science of fiction this week is because I happened to be listening to a course called A Skeptic's Guide to American History. Which somebody, my mother-in-law actually got for me because it said a skeptic's guide, you know, and that, that's the name <laughs> of my show. Um, but it is good. I mean, the thing is, it's, it's, it's the same approach that we take. It's teaching American history partly by debunking common myths, which is a, a good approach, I think. You take common misconceptions and you correct them by telling you, why do we think that? That's an anachronism or whatever. Here's what's really going on. It's actually a very effective, teaching tool. So I do, it's a, it's a teaching company, you know, the Great Courses course, so I do recommend it, The Skeptic's Guide to American What's another history. myth? Did he, did George Washington cut down a cherry tree? Well, no, that's, that's known to be, no, he, that was a, totally apocryphal. That was completely made up by his biographer. He didn't cut down a cherry tree. Was he a pothead? <laughs> was he no. able to throw a silver dollar across the Potomac River? Now, all of those stories were just, you know, apocryphal. George Washington's is a very interesting character. So one thing that I think a lot of people know is that uh, as a general, he lost most of his of his battles, and he actually had only like two real victories. But he had the one that counted, the last one at the end. Yeah. But he his his strategy. The, the, yeah, that's the one that counts. That's the one you want. Yeah. The, yeah. the last. Yeah. But the, his strategy during the Revolutionary War, he realized that's the thing. He realized the big picture. He didn't have to defeat the British. All he had to do was keep them engaged until their war with the rest of Europe wore them down. Mm -hmm. So all he had to do was keep the Continental Army together and keep them from being completely wiped out. That reminds me and of the Star Trek Next Generation yeah. episode. Yeah. yeah. Probably where they got it. So <laughs> did, did his wife knit the American flag? No. No. What? And neither, no, Betsy, neither Ross. Did Betsy Ross. Betsy Ross. No, no, she didn't do did it either. Did she fold no. the star into five points? That's a myth. I, I don't think Betsy Ross had anything to do with the American flag. That's a Duh. myth. Yeah. Oh, boy. Is All it right. true that Abraham Lincoln killed vampires? I'm not up to that point yet. <laughs> yes. I'm not to that lecture yet, but I'll keep an eye out for that one. So, is there, no, seriously, is there another myth? Is there a myth about D-Day or World War II or? Yeah. Oh, so here's the good one. All right. I gotta get, I'm gonna tell you one more myth. So the notion that the colonists respected religious freedoms, right? That religious freedom is sort of baked into our culture from the time of the first founders is actually largely not true. Um, the, the, the major, the, the, uh, what we think of as real religious freedom really came after World War II and as a reaction to Hitler. Because people saw firsthand what, if you actually take your bigotry to its logical conclusion, that's what Hitler was. And so it sort of made it completely morally unacceptable to a much greater degree than any previous time in history. To, to engage in the type of anti-Semitism and bigotry and religious intolerance and things like that. Plus, it didn't hurt that we had soldiers from every part of the country and every walk of life band of brothers in the trenches together. And then, you know, may, he made the point, the author, that that maybe have been the first time that the Southern Baptists was shoulder to shoulder with a Northerner or whatever. You know, was it true? Hey, we have another American history quote to close out the show, Evan. This I love this quote. It is a great quote in Abraham Lincoln in his debate with Stephen Douglas in 1858. He said, 
His argument is as thin as the homeopathic soup that was made by boiling the shadow of a pigeon that had been starved to death. (laughs) Abraham Lincoln knew that homeopathy was bunk. He dissed Douglas and homeopathy in one. That's pretty good. Perfect, perfect. Oh, but here's something you didn't know about Abraham Lincoln, right? He is enshrined in the Wrestling Hall of Fame as a young man. He had over 300 matches. He was only defeated once in his amateur wrestling career. Hey, everyone. This is Steve breaking in really quickly before the end of the show. Just one quick announcement. On May 2nd, Saturday from 12 noon to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be doing our 10-year anniversary live video audio streaming event. To watch the event live streaming, you can go to our YouTube channel, The Skeptic's Guide on YouTube, and that's where we will we will be streaming it. Uh, we'll have a lot of great guests. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we've been working really hard on this event, so please join us. All right, let's get back to the closeout of our show live from Nexus 2015. Thank you all for joining me, Bill Nye. Thank you so Bell, much Bell, for joining Bell. us. It's yeah. awesome. Until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Thank you. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.